The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. Go ahead and open your Bible, uh, if you have one with you, to Mark uh, chapter 8. Or if you have one of these Gospel of Mark booklets uh, that we handed out, you can just open it to Mark chapter 8 in there. You can follow along in version uh, this morning as well. We're not going to be reading all of Mark chapter 8 today. We're really going to be focusing on the latter, uh, the latter part of it. And we'll get to that here in a couple of, of minutes. Um, so I don't know about you, but I, I think that there are some, some dates that are kind of burned into our collective minds. So let's, let's do a test. Uh, December 7th, 1941. Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor. Good job. Uh, November 22nd, 1963. John F. Kennedy was killed. Um, January 28th, 1986. Challenger. Yes, Challenger. September 11th, 2001. September 11th attacks. I know we're all familiar with that. Um, other dates are more personal. Uh, June 8th, 1991 is the day that Ann and I were married. Uh, February 24th, 1992, our daughter Katie was born. October 10th, 1993, our son John was born. Uh, June 19th, 1998, our son, what did I say? Did I say Nathan or John? Okay, Nathan was born on October 11th of 93. This is why I have this written down, actually. Um, And John was born on June 19th, 1998. Um, On August 21st, the year is completely unimportant, um, is when my wife was born. Um, And our... Our lives, um, our lives consist of all kinds of things. Our lives consist of all kinds of dates and activities and, and happenings. And the Bible actually has, has a term for that. The Bible calls those things seasons. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, I'm just going gonna to read this. And this is how, this is how Solomon describes seasons. For everything, there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to scatter stones, gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to turn away. A time to search and a time to quit searching. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be quiet and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. So I don't know if you remember this. This will be on the screen. Um, two years ago today, two years ago today, my living room was filled with people. Uh, Dustin and Becky Jones were there. Austin and Michaela Peterson were there. Anne was there. Our son, J3, was there. And we had all sorts of cords and cables and a camera and the world's smallest soundboard. And we had all of these things. And what we were doing was we were recording 
our first ever recording when we went into shutdown. This was our, this was our foray into being online as a church. Um, went back and actually watched that message um, this week. We broke it down into four different sections um, for a total of 28 minutes which I think is a record for me. But it was 28 minutes broken into four sections. And when that week was said and done, when we, from, from writing to recording to editing, as we talked with different people who were involved and engaged with that, um, in order to have a 28-minute sermon on YouTube on that Sunday, we've estimated it was probably 80 to 85 hours went into that time. Yeah, wow, <laughs> that's exactly what it felt like. Um, and and for, the, for the next four to six weeks, um, it just felt like, like that 80 hours was just a constant, constant reality um, for us. And over the last two years, we've come a long way in streaming. Here's our, here's our current broadcast room. I would encourage you sometime to go back and take a look. It's in the, um, it's in the, in the staff offices, um, but we, we've split up how we do sound online and how we do video online, and it does not take 85 hours a week, thankfully, anymore. Um, we have loved been able to uh, connect with people in this way. If you've been here for the last two years, or there have been times where we've missed for snow or bad weather, or, or maybe you just always join us online. You have, you've seen the fruit of that last two years. You've been able to take advantage of that. And one of the things that we love the most about what's been able to happen over the past two years is how we've been able to connect with people who are homebound. Um, we used to call them shut-ins, but people who, 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 don't, who can't physically, are physically unable to come to church. And for many of those people, the last two years has actually been the first time that they've been able to participate with us on a Sunday morning in, in five or six years for many of those people. So it's been such, a, it's been such an amazing uh, transition um, for for us as we think about and reflect upon the last two years. Um, but as, as you know and I know, the last two years has not been all lollipops and gumdrops, right? As we read through the book of, as we read through Ecclesiastes, those eight verses that I shared earlier, um, there are times of significant difficulty and times of significant challenge. And Ecclesiastes 3, this is the wonderful thing about the Bible, Ecclesiastes 3 gives us language to recognize difficult times. As, as Christians, as, as people who, who are reading and studying the Bible and trying to understand what the Bible has to say, the Bible gives us language to know how to talk about difficult times. It gives us the words um, that we can use. It says that there's a time to tear down says there's a time to cry. Maybe the translation that you prefer says a time to mourn. Like the Bible says, there's a time to mourn. When you mourn, that's a normal part of life. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to grieve. And, and kind of as such, as I've been thinking about uh, this particular message over the past, really the last month and a half, um, I've, I've kind of got it divided into three, three categories um, and it's the, the title. It's just called An Apology, a Thanks, and an Invitation. And just 
there are things that as a church we just want to we just want to acknowledge as we reflect on the past two years for the things that we could have done better, for the things that we could have done different. Like this is this is what a healthy church does. This is what a healthy people in healthy relationship do is they is they think and they apologize and they reflect. And and if we could have a redo, which who wants a redo over the last two years? Oh, Bobby wants a redo. Why do you want to? I don't want to redo. Um, we don't want to redo. But if we, if we had one, if, we could, if I could go back in some way, if we could go back, um, we would have kept in touch with people in a much more consistent way. I wish we had done that. And if you're someone that, that too wishes we could have done that, I, I, hope, that, I hope that you'll hear me say um, that we're sorry. We're sorry we didn't do that better. And I wish that we could, well, I don't wish we could go back. Um, but I, I, I do wish that we would have done things differently. And one of the things that, that I, tell, I tell families all the time, if I've, ever, if I've ever been around you for a funeral, one of the things that you have heard me say is that grieving is a process. People take time to grieve differently and people grieve differently. And it's really not up to us to determine how someone else grieves. It's not up to us to say, well, this person went through that thing, and I went through this thing, and then we like start comparing our hardships, right? Um, I just want to encourage you that if you are, if you're mourning over something, I want to encourage you to just take time to mourn. To allow yourself to, to, to feel those thoughts as I really spent a lot of time this week working on this message, I had a lot of thoughts and feelings wash over my soul. Um, and I realized that there were some things I just hadn't taken time to mourn about. And the Bible tells us that there's a time for mourning. So we are allowed to press pause. We are allowed um, to do that. And I also don't think that we took into account fully the implications of the changes that we were making in the midst of all that. If you've only been here within the past two years, your frame of reference for communion is the little cups, right? So if you've never attended any church before, or you've only attended Westway in the last two years, you might think that we've always had those little cups. Well, believe it or not, prior to March um, 22nd of 2020, we had these things called communion trays. And actually, we still have them in the back and we pass them. And like we don't, obviously we don't do that anymore. And there's lots of reasons for not doing that anymore. But that's not something that we don't do anymore. And maybe, maybe that's something that, that you mourn. And maybe for some of us that maybe seems like a silly thing that someone would mourn. But we don't judge how other people mourn. So if you're sad about not passing communion trays, it's okay. Um, another thing, um, remember this. This is called a bulletin. This is, in fact, this is the very last bulletin from our live in-person gathering from March 15th of 2020. I had someone uh, come into the office earlier this, or last week, at the beginning of last week, about something, and we somehow started talking about um, just the past couple years, and he said, I think I have one of those bulletins. I said, will you bring it? So he brought it, and I don't know if he wants it back. If he doesn't, we've discussed framing it in our office. Um, because like, I don't know, I don't think, I don't think we're ever going to do bulletins again. 
Because guess what? We've, for the last two years, we've operated without a bulletin. Isn't that amazing? The things that we thought we could never do without, um, we don't have this. And, and if you're lamenting the loss of bulletins, like, like that's okay. You are allowed to lament the loss of bulletins. It doesn't mean we're going to print them again for you. It just means you are allowed, you're allowed to miss them. You're allowed to mourn. You're allowed to feel loss. And there are probably a whole host of other things that in your graciousness, you have never brought up to us. And we are so thankful for that. We're thankful for you. You have, you have rolled with the punches. You have rolled with the realities that, that we have gone through over the past couple years. And you continue to do that today. And we are just so eminently thankful for you, our church body. And, and not just me as one of the pastors here, for the, speaking for the other pastors, but speaking for our elders. We're just so thankful. We're thankful for the way you've rolled with, like, you know, when there's a lighting change, something is going to happen on stage. You probably figure that out by now. Um, you never thought that we were going to have televangelists at Westway Christian Church. I never thought that we were going to do that. But see, you've rolled with those punches and we're thankful. And however you felt about masks or social distancing or hand sanitizer stations every three feet at Westway Christian Church, um, one of the things that we're thankful about is you did, not, um, you did not berate us about our decision. We're really grateful for that. Because as we've talked about before, I'll share again, like this, that was a pretty uncommon experience for most churches in the United States. Most of the pastors that I ever talked to in that, in that time, however long it was, how most of the pastors I've, I've ever have talked to just talked about how they heard from people like, we should wear masks, we shouldn't wear masks, you shouldn't have hand sanitation stations, you shouldn't do this, you should do this, like in all of these kinds of things, and you, you didn't do that. So thank you. Thanks for not judging every single, uh, at least thanks for not telling us that you were judging every one of our decisions. You made our, you made our ministry to you, you made it a joy in a time that, that frankly wasn't filled with a lot of joy. But I don't think you did that um, as much as I think you're great. I don't think you did that out of the goodness of your hearts. I think you did that because that's a reflection of what God does through you. See, God is a gracious God. God is a generous God. And when we are around a generous and gracious God, something, something spiritual happens to us. We become more like him. We read through the scriptures and we see the things that are important to God. And, and we want to be like him. We want to be kind. We want to be generous. We want to be filled with thanksgiving. And we thank God. So we thank you and we thank God because, because he has placed us here in this time. That's a text I know a lot of other pastors or churches have talked about. We haven't spent very much time talking about that. But there's something about this time of our current culture of where we are in world history. There's something about this time that God saw fit to place us into. Isn't that wonderful? 
that God saw something about today and he knew what he was going to accomplish to us, in us, and through us, that he set us into that space. And none of the things that have happened over the past couple years were an accident. They weren't a happenstance. Um, Nothing caught God off guard. You heard me talk about that, that God wasn't surprised by anything over the past two years. And this is why it is so crucial for us that we answer the question, who is Jesus correctly? See, it's in the midst of those seasons. It's in the midst of the grieving and the midst of the teardown and the midst of all of these hardships and all of these difficulties that we need the correct answer to the question, who is Jesus? And that's why we've been talking about this for the past eight weeks. Just going back through the last seven chapters, see, either Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God or he's not. Jesus either has the ability to forgive sins, as he said he did, or he does not. Jesus is either out of his mind crazy, which is what his mom and brothers thought about him, or he's not. See, what we have been presented with throughout this text is is an image of Jesus, is an idea of who Jesus is. And he's he's either casting out demons because he's God, or he's working with Satan to cast out demons. And what Mark is doing as he's, he's teaching us and he's through his writing, through hearing what Peter told him, like he's painting a picture for us of what Jesus looks like, of who Jesus is. And as we talked about last week in Mark chapter 7, where Jesus calls the Syrophoenician woman a dog, right? We, we have to know that Jesus' heart is to love us as we read that. There has to be some context in order to hear Jesus say that to someone. And throughout the the last seven chapters, Jesus has been showing us who he is. And people have experienced him in lots of different ways. And this chapter, chapter 8, is probably the most important chapter in the entire book. It's the pivotal chapter in the book. Because Mark is going to tell us three things. In what we're going to read today. He's going to tell us who Jesus is. He's going to answer the question. He's going to tell us what it means. And then he's going to tell us what we should do about it. So let's read. This is Mark chapter 8. We're going to begin at verse 30. You can follow along uh, with me in your Bible online or in your booklet. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. While they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. 
So one of the things that, that we've encouraged you to do, we talked about this early on in the series and a few other times, remembering that Mark, Matthew, and Luke are called synoptic gospels. That means much of their, much of their text is the same. Much of their stories are the same. They're telling the same story in the same ways. And Matthew's gospel adds this. In Jesus's response, he says, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. This is the this is the pivot point of Mark's entire gospel right here. See, Jesus has the opportunity right now. To say. I'm not the Messiah. I'm just a prophet. Do you see that in the text? Jesus has the opportunity to say that he is just a prophet. And there are different world religions that firmly believe that Jesus is just another prophet. And when we read this, we then have to ask the question, well, if Jesus is just a prophet, why didn't he say that? Because if you remember back at the beginning of the book of Mark in the story with John the Baptist, the people were asking John the Baptist, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we're waiting for? And what does John the Baptist say? Nope, I'm not even fit to tie that guy's shoes. There's someone else coming. And what Jesus doesn't do here is amazing. He doesn't say, No, I'm not the Messiah. I'm just another prophet. He also doesn't say that he's the forerunner to someone else. He doesn't say, no, I'm kind of like John the Baptist pointed to me. I'm just pointing to another person that's coming. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's answering the question, who is Jesus? The Messiah. That's a Hebrew term, a Jewish term. In maybe your translation, maybe that uses more Greek words, it'll say the Christ, which is a Greek term. And both of these phrases mean the anointed one. See, what's happening here is Jesus is is wanting to know what everyone else is saying about him. And then he turns to the people in front of him and says, "Okay, but what do you say? Who do you say I am? And this is crucial for us today. It doesn't matter what other people say or think about who Jesus is. It matters who you say Jesus is. See, this is our question that we must wrestle with. Well, I go to church and we're reading this from Mark and John says that Jesus is the Messiah. So that's my answer. Jesus doesn't allow that. Jesus doesn't allow us to to ride on the coattails of someone else's faith into heaven. Does that make sense? See, we have to make this decision. And and I remember back back in January, our first Sunday in January, when Denise Gentry joined Westway. She she mimicked the words from John chapter 4 of the Samaritan woman, or of the Samaritans. Remember, Jesus meets this woman at the well. She goes home to tell everyone to, meet, to, to come out and see the person who told her everything she ever did. They all go out back to the well, and Jesus is there. 
And then Jesus goes and spends time with them. And at the end of John 4, it says this. This is the words of the people in this village. Now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have seen him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. Do you see the difference between the two things? See, initially, those Samaritan people believed in who Jesus was because they heard someone else tell them. They believed what other people said. But at some point, it became personal for the Samaritan villagers. It became their story. And next week at this Family Life workshop that we're doing... We want to talk about that. We want to talk about the importance for parents and grandparents to pour the gospel into their children. To share the story of who Jesus is with their kids and with their grandkids. That's so crucial. It's so important. But ultimately, your children are going to make the decision for themselves. So here's reality. What we want to do is we want to make sure that when we're talking about Jesus, we're actually talking about Jesus. The Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Jesus who's walking on water. We didn't talk about this story a few weeks ago. This would have been a great one for a small group. The story where Jesus is walking on the water and the disciples are in fear. And the text says that he was intent on walking by them. See, your children and your grandchildren need to hear difficult things about Jesus. They need to be introduced to the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Things that are challenging. Because what's going to happen is, is they're going to grow up and they're going to go, you know, they're going to go into the world. They're going to go to college or join the military or they're going to start a career. And they're going to be around people. Some of whom know the Bible better than you do who are not Christians. And they're going to they're gonna pull out Mark chapter 7 where Jesus calls the woman the dog. And they're going to be completely unequipped to know how to talk about that. So it's our responsibility to share our faith with our kids. To pass along our faith to our kids. But ultimately our children are going to make their own decision. So what I want you to hear today is, is it's not enough to take what someone else says about Jesus. And build your faith around that thing. We've been invited to join Jesus. And we're going to talk about that here in a couple minutes. So Jesus is the Messiah. What does that mean? Because they had their mindset, right? They had their own idea of what that was going to look like. And it looked something like this. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to deliver us from the Romans. He's going to make Israel great again. That's, that's the storyline that they have been telling themselves for centuries. The Messiah is going to come, kick out the Romans. Israel is going to be a great nation. That's the storyline. And Jesus does something really strange. This is verse 31 in Mark 8. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed... But three days later, he would rise from the dead. So that does not sound like throw out the Romans, make Israel great again. That sounds like the exact opposite of that, right? Verse 32. 
As he talked openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. So how how does Jesus go from calling Peter blessed to like, this appears to be like five seconds later calling him Satan? How, How does... How does Jesus make that leap to what's going on? I think there's a clue earlier in Mark chapter 8. And that's part of the text we didn't read. I want you to go back to verse 22 for a second. When they had arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then spitting on the man's eyes. You don't read about that one in Bible, Bible, Bible club, right? We won't VBS that verse. Then spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, can you see anything now? The man looked around. Yes, he said, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. Jesus sent him away, saying, don't go back into the village on your way home. So when you read this story, like I have some questions. Do you have any, who has some questions about this story? Why didn't Jesus just heal the man completely? We know he has the power to do that. We've seen that power demonstrated up until this point. So, so why, why didn't Jesus do that? Like the dozens, if not hundreds of people he had healed up to this point, why didn't he heal the man completely on the first go-round? And maybe you've wondered a question like, why doesn't just Jesus just heal me completely? For those of us that are struggling with sin in our lives, like we look back maybe, maybe five, ten, maybe two years ago, maybe one year ago, maybe six months ago, and we feel like we've made so much progress in dealing with our sin, but like it still remains. Anybody else? Like why hasn't Jesus just healed me? Why doesn't he just take away this sin? Why doesn't he just deal with this struggle in my life? Well, this is... When we need to remember that when Jesus says or does something, it's for a reason. That is not everything happens for a reason. It is that Jesus is doing things for a reason. He's demonstrating the reality of who he is to us. He's telling us something about his character How many times have we read the kingdom of God is like? Jesus is describing for us, is demonstrating for us what God's kingdom is like. Jesus is showing us what the complete expression of love looks like. So why? Why does Jesus spit on the man's eyes? That doesn't work. And then he has to do something else. So here's what I think. I'm going to step away from my Bible for a second. This is just what I think. I think 
what the man needs, and this is a metaphor, I'm going to get in a little unconcrete on you. What the man needs is repeated applications of Jesus in order to see clearly. And I wonder for, for us, don't we need repeated applications of Jesus in order to see and understand clearly? Don't we need to hear the same stories over and over and over and over again? Not a week has gone by since we started going through this series that I haven't had someone say to me, hey, you know what? I've been reading the Gospel of Mark for X number of years, and I've never seen what you have talked about in here. That's not because of me. It's because of who God is and how God reveals things to us. But see, I think we need repeated applications of Jesus to be able to see clearly, to be able to fully understand what's going on. Because if we were to go back now a little bit forward into the story, Jesus knew who, or Peter knew who Jesus was, right? Jesus was the Messiah. He had the right intellectual answer. But when it came time to knowing what Jesus' purpose was, did he know it? He didn't fully understand. So Jesus is applying himself to us multiple times. Jesus does this not for our salvation, but for our sanctification. See, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is once for all, never to be repeated for the believer, that's not in question. But what each and every one of us must have from Jesus is more Jesus. To be exposed more to the scriptures. To be exposed more to the heart of Jesus Christ. And over time, like the man that Jesus heals, don't we see more clearly? Thinking back to who you were, your understanding of who Jesus was five years ago, two years ago, six months ago, don't you see clearer now? And the answer is because you have been around him. But Jesus is not content with just telling us who he is or what his purpose is. He expects us to do something about it. See, the gospel has implications. Let's read verses 34 to 38 from Mark chapter 8. Then, calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake... Or for the sake of, and for the sake of the good news, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is there anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. See, Jesus is not asking us or inviting us to simply intellectually assent to the reality that he is the Messiah. 
Jesus is not asking us to agree with him that he is the Messiah. Or to only agree that he is the Messiah. He's not asking us to say, yep, Jesus is the Messiah. And then we just all go home back to our normal lives and don't do anything about it. See, acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah comes with, comes with a consequence. Comes with an implication. It comes with something that I must do. And to be clear, we're not doing these things in order to be saved. This is crucial for, for us to understand as Christians. This isn't a work that saves us. It's a work because we're saved. See, because we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, we do something about it. It causes us to do something. We take an action, and it's really simple. I love it when the Bible is self-explanatory. We have to give up our own way. Think about that for a minute. Think about your own way. Think about your preferences and your power and your place and your position. Think about your own way. In order to follow Jesus, we have to give that up. So the things that are our own, we have to give them up. We have to pass them along. Then Jesus says, take up our cross. Remember, the cross is an instrument of painfully slow and tortuous death. Very few people were put on a cross and died instantly. This was by design. We're going to talk about this on Good Friday in a few weeks. The cross was an instrument of painfully slow and tortuous death. So if it feels like your, your pathway to being sanctified, to being made holy, your pathway to being made into the image that God is desiring for you, if that feels like torturously slow and painful death, anyone else? You're winning. It's supposed to be hard. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It should feel like you are dying being made into God's image. And if it does, you're doing it right. If it feels like it's taking forever, you're doing it right. God is doing it right. And then we want to follow Jesus. So we give up our own way. We take up our cross and we follow Jesus. His way, his methods, his ideals, and his example. We read that in the Gospels. When Jesus is kind, graceful, and merciful to those who oppose him, that's what we're supposed to do. And it will feel like you are dying to be nice to someone who completely doesn't deserve it. But that's what this is. This is what we're being called to. He says, clinging to what we have and who we are without him leads to death. So this is the thing, like I have, I have one foot in the world and one foot in God's kingdom. You're going to die. It's leading you to death to hold on to these old things. Giving up what we have and who we are without him then leads to life. So when we pass 
those old things off and we walk in this new life, we give up our preferences and our power and our place and our position and we exchange them for what God has, we actually have life. Because when you're kind and graceful to someone, doesn't it just feel better? Even when they're undeserving. See, that's life. That is life. Jesus says we can have lots of things. We can have everything and we can lose our soul. So I was thinking about this. I wrote down, there are lots of things that you can give your life to and the vast majority of them will cost you your soul. So as you evaluate, as I evaluate, what are the things that I'm giving my time and my effort and my energy to? Is it of God? Or is it leading me to death? Because if giving my life to anything else other than Jesus leads to death, then I want to live. I want to follow Christ. Nothing is worth more than our souls. And what Jesus is doing here is he's inviting us to a new path. And that's really the invitation. To join him in what he's doing. To follow him. To go to the place where there's life and where there's hope and where there's peace. Anne sent me a few verses this past week as I wrestled through today's message and I thought I would just share them with you. Philippians 3.12. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, this is how we get rid of the old things in our life. We forget them. We move past them. And we move towards Jesus. Here's Luke verse nine, chapter, or chapter 9, verse 62. But Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. See, when we hold on to these old things, what Jesus is saying is we are unfit for God's kingdom. You cannot do what you used to do and go with God where he is leading, where he's calling you to. And here's the third one. This is Proverbs 4.25, and it says this. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Each one of these verses and what Jesus is talking about in Mark 8 is a reorientation of our lives. It's away from an orientation on ourselves, on the things that we want, on the things that we find valuable, on the things that we want to spend our time with, we want to spend our energy on, and orienting ourselves around who God is calling us to be. This chapter escalates quickly. We find out that Jesus is the Messiah quickly and then all of a sudden Jesus just like dumps the whole dump truck on you and says yep and if you want to be my disciple you have to give up everything about your life in order to follow me it was all great when Jesus is healing people and feeding them and casting out demons everybody's just kind of along for the ride but now 
there are implications. Now, there's an invitation for us to join him. And that way is not through gumdrops and lollipops, but it's through dying of ourselves and to ourselves and following him and making him our Lord. Now, if you've never done that, I want to encourage you, like today can be your day. Today is the day to make your choice. If Jesus is the Christ, if Jesus is the Messiah, then take the implications of that and live your life for him. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that you, you reveal the identity of Jesus to us. We, we don't have to sit and wonder about who Jesus is. We don't have to anguish over his identity. We've been introduced to him in now the last eight chapters of this book. I pray for those of us who have been riding the coattails of someone else's faith, that we would recognize that it's time to, it's time to grow up. It's time to own it. When we get asked, are you a Christian? And our response is, yep, my parents were charter members of this church. Or my mom took me to VBS every year. Help us to grow up. Help us to see that following you is an individualized choice and it's a decision. And it comes with consequence and it comes with implications. And those implications and consequences are going to feel like we are losing our lives. And that's because we are. Only be given a new one. Pray for those who need to make a decision about following you, that they would do so today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.